Hey everyone, this is your host EJ Lawless of the HR Tech Go to Market podcast, the best and only podcast focusing on how HR Tech and future of work companies go to market. Today's guest is Jason Corsello, GP founder of Acadian Ventures. Acadian Ventures does seed stage investing in future of work companies. And today we hear what types of companies he invests in, what he looks for, tips and tricks and themes he's following. All right, Jason, I'll let you take it away. What is Acadian Ventures and what you're working on? Yeah, AJ. So in simplest form, Acadian Ventures is a seed stage venture fund focused on the future of work. Now, what is the future of work? Seems to be many definitions out there today, but the the way we think about it is really we're on a mission to invest in companies that are transforming work, leveraging technology to make people's working lives simpler, uh, simpler more gratifying and ultimately more productive. We believe there's a big shift underway right now in the world of work that's been accelerated in the last two years. And, you know, we're looking at investing in that next generation of companies. Got that, That's great. So when you talk about it, you know, maybe you and I, to your point, like we kind of think about it differently. You have a very people focused view. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, my experience has been traditional work tech, HR tech, it's really predicated on the view of software as a service, software-enabled businesses, really looking at leveraging technology to scale. You know, we don't, you know, like many people think about robotics as kind of future work or other tangential areas. And those are just areas that we don't spend a lot of time in simply because we don't have the market knowledge or expertise. So we focus on on what we know. And a lot of that's based off of our operational experience of, of building and operating SaaS companies at scale. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that operational experience and what you were doing before Acadian Ventures? Yeah, it's it's great. I'd love to. So, you know, most of my career has been on the operational side and probably more recently, I spent the last seven years at a uh, SaaS company called Cornerstone On Demand. Cornerstone was one of the pioneering companies around talent management, learning management. And so at Cornerstone, I was ran uh, corporate development and strategy. And really what that meant is everything from figuring out what new products that we should be building to M&A acquisitions that we should be thinking about to setting up a corporate venture fund. And that was kind of my lead into, into what I'm doing today, you know, as a, as a independent venture capital firm, but really got to be part of a company that grew in scale from when I joined, you know, the, the business was about 40 million in ARR um, and over a seven year period of time in the public markets going to about uh, a half a billion in, in ARR. So pretty fun, exciting yeah, growth times and, and hopefully, yeah, and, and hopefully something we can offer to our companies is kind of being kind of been been in that operational role. So we know a lot of challenges that you know many companies will probably face over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to investing now, where do you typically focus? So obviously, future of work, but is there a stage? Is there a geography? What are the types of deals that you really feel fit within your thesis? Yeah, AJ, so we're seed stage. So what that means for us is anything from, and the lines obviously are blurring and continue to blur, but that means for us pre, pre-seed. So it could be companies that are pre-product, pre-revenue, upwards of what now everyone likes to call the seed plus or seed extension stage. And that's where companies maybe have 
some growth, some some momentum, but you know, need capital to get them to the next finance, larger financing event. And so that's you know where we spend most of our time from a stage perspective. From a from a geography, you know, this is probably where we're a little bit unique amongst early stage or seed stage funds as we invest internationally. So about one third of our fund today is invested outside of the U.S. So we've got investments in countries um, such as France, Ireland. We have an investment in Singapore. We're finalizing an investment in LATAM and Mexico right now. So we look globally. We believe there's, you know, in this new world, there's you can kind of start a software business anywhere and and, and um, grow a business at scale anywhere in the world. And so we look at internationally. We, I would expect by the time we fully deploy Fund One here shortly, we'll probably be close to 50-50 is which we kind of set out when we first started investing two and a half years ago. Wow. I mean, it feels like a big shift probably from a few years ago of the geographic distribution of how things would have been. When you're thinking about outside US investments, are you looking for business models that you think worked in the US and will work in other countries? Are you looking for business models native to that country that might be unique in terms of how talent and labor works? What's that approach there? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's a a combination of both, right? So if I look at the handful of of investments that we've done, the the theme I kind of grasp to is what I'll call globalization of SaaS. And really what that means is, you know, maybe following the same playbook that happened in the US, but doing it in emerging countries like Southeast Asia or LATAM. So that's certainly an important part of our, our thesis. There are, you know, some considerations when you think about being able to to build a company in in a specific geography. We invested in a company in France that um, is focused on mental wellness, and certainly, you know, the mental wellness issues are are similar but different than the U.S. So, I think the short answer to your question is is it's a little bit of 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 both that we're looking at investing in today. Got it. And then are you typically looking to provide additional value? So you make the investment, do you stay connected with the founder? And if so, what are the types of things that you might help the founder with when they need it? Yeah, this is really another fantastic question. I mean, we we stay very involved with our, our companies. We don't, you know, unlike some of the, the mar- much larger multi-stage companies, we don't have a kind of a set playbook or even dedicated individuals. What we do once we make an investment is we sit with down with the founders and we say, where could we add the most value, particularly in the short term, but also thinking about you know the, the mid and long term? And so we map a, we'll, we'll map out a plan to say you know here's what we need, whether it's hey connections to people within the network, whether it's you know spending some time in in planning sessions and strategic planning. So it really varies by company, but that's something because of of our operational experience. I think hopefully that's where you know we can add a lot of value to companies and accelerate their trajectory. Because, you know, in most cases, we've probably run into similar questions that, that we've just been able to navigate through historically through, through our own experiences. Got it. That makes sense. When it comes to thinking about future of work, and I think you know, mentioned SaaS, do you see talent marketplaces in that or is it, is it more on the SaaS side for you? Yeah, we predominantly focus on on SaaS. You know, we've looked at a lot of talent marketplaces and marketplace models themselves. and. What we found is two things. One is we just don't have the operational expertise to be hugely helpful in building those double-sided marketplaces. So um, we want to make sure when we, when we do invest, we see an opportunity where we think we can help. Secondarily is what, what I've found is in a lot of those marketplace models, they are extremely capital intensive. And so being a super early small small fund 
you know, we just don't have the capital necessary to, to support those companies beyond where we invest. And, and so we, you know, typically from a, just a pure investment perspective, yeah, we would expect to get pretty well diluted as companies raise a lot more capital over time. And so it's just, those are the two predominant areas why we haven't focused on our marketplaces. I can't say that, you know, that will be, that will continue. It's something that I'm intrigued with. There's so many different intriguing marketplace models today, but we just haven't got comfortable with, with pulling the trigger on an investment just yet. Yep. Yep. I understand. I think those do take a lot of time and effort and money to, to raise or to, to really execute on and make work. What are some of the areas in HR tech right now that you're excited about in particular? Yeah, let me give you, I mean, so one, we, we look at, you know, all areas. I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time just meeting with companies and learning what's happening out there. I'd say, you know, I'm not going to just talk about four, but the four that I think are, are where we're spending probably a majority of our time right now is one is on this area of kind of globalization of SaaS. So looking at companies in emerging markets where we think there's just a huge opportunity for companies to get access to technologies that they probably previously didn't have access to. So SaaS-based solutions in particular. So globalization is a big thing for us. The second is what I'll call next generation architectures. And, and what I mean by that, that sounds is, intriguing. yeah, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So what that means is really thinking about the new next set of toolings required to, to give companies more flexibility, more control over what technologies they're using. And let me be even more specific, right? So things like no code workflow automation, things like API centric or even API first companies. Those are where I'm, I'm just super intrigued at. We've made one investment in particular in a company called Assembly, interestingly enough. So the idea of you can assemble different piece parts, different workflows to, to configure the software to, to you know, your company. I mean, previously, and the way I think about this, EJ, is if you look at you know, the companies that are at scale today, the work days of the world, you know, they were built on a set of technologies that you know, when they started are very different from probably what what you would use today. And a lot of these applications that companies use today are just very, you know, massive in terms of feature functions. And, you know, many companies just don't use all of them and don't need to, and that's okay. So this idea of no code is really, you know, giving customers the Lego blocks to build things that they want, to be able to customize where, you know, in the traditional SaaS world, customization was a big no-no. And, and so no code is something I'm super interested in, API, because, are you thinking you know, about the no-code space for HR no-code? Because I think I've seen some of those enterprise no-code generally, or like the SMB, the web flows and bubbles. What's yeah, sort of in that space for you? Yeah, predominantly no-code for HR and no-code for work tools. So not necessarily, you know, the the more you know workflow automation tools that can be used outside of work in HR. So sales and and marketing things like that. It's very specific on HR. And there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening there today. Cool. Um, I know. Cut you off. What are the other two? Yeah, four? yeah. So sorry. So the third one is around skills platforms. So this is one area, you know, skills. I just think there's still a, a huge opportunity that hasn't been served in the marketplace today. And if, if you just think about it very simply, I think, you know, job titles and job positions themselves have been traditionally been a currency. And I think we're shifting from job titles as the currency to skills as the currency. And so mm. that's everything from being able to categorize skills to be able to determine skills, skills competencies, identify skills gaps. So, you know, there's just a huge unmet need within organizations say, to identify what skills they have, what skills they need. 
what skills they need to go and, and acquire. And then the last one very quickly is this, you know, the, the hot area of Web3. I'll, I'll kind of bundle crypto lightly into that. But I think, you know, Web3, broadly speaking, is is very, very interesting in terms of being able to leverage decentralized systems, being able to think about tokenization, being able to think about open identity. I think we're certainly a long, long way from that making its way into the work tech and HR world, but it's something that we've started to do some research research on is what what are those implications? Because I do think they are pretty pretty impactful and will be impactful over time. Cool. I, I think there's some great ones. I've got a couple of questions. So on the skill side, how do you think about hard skills versus the soft skills? And you know, how someone works with someone else and the ability to think about those. Yeah, I mean, you know, some would argue, I'm not sure which side I, uh, on the argument I fall, but some would argue soft skills are probably more important than hard skills. I think more more importantly is, you know, for for companies and individuals to identify what skills, you know, they have. And, you know, when you think about engineering skills today, right, I mean, they're changing so quickly. You know, a developer loses nearly half of their skills every 18 months because some new coding language comes along mm-hmm. or something new comes along. And so it's being able to assess where those skills are, what your competencies are, because I'm, you know, because I say on my resume, I'm a data scientist. Does that mean I'm a novice data scientist or does that mean I'm an expert level? So being able to understand credentialing. So there's a lot of, of, of implications of what, you know, what, what the meaning of skill is and, and, and why it matters, but yeah, I, I think it, it, it's an interesting space. And, and so I think there's that reskilling movement I've seen and kind of thinking about the web three, I've seen some companies talk about using on chain certification. And so right. someone goes, they do, they do a task, that task gets verified on chain, and then it becomes part of their credentials that said they were capable of doing this at this point in time. And so that, that could change in a very interesting way, but it's going to be, I think, harder skills in certain areas. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you another interesting example, right? So, you know, like in in the job networks and job board world, like you know, we all make introductions every every day. What if you can start to monetize off of those those introductions because there's value, there's currency, you know? Have so you, there's. I think we probably talked about this in the past, but brain trust. And so, if you refer yeah. candidates over to brain trust, they'll they'll give you B trust tokens, which that's right one point in time were $30 a token. So it, it could be hundreds or thousands of dollars, depending on how it's referred. Yeah. And there's so many different projects going on that want to be able to start to monetize those, those tokens. So I think, I think there's, it's certainly, you know, super early. There's, you know, a lot of risk involved from an investor perspective today, but you know, there's also certainly a lot of opportunity. You know, we're, we're watching on the sidelines right now because I'm not sure we necessarily have a point of view, but I think, you know, what's happening today is just as impactful as, you know, what happened a decade or two ago when, when, you know, we will move from the on-premise world to the cloud world. Interesting. One of the things that I didn't hear you talk about that I feel like is kind of hot right now is this AI and chat, chat bot space. Is that something that you group under another area? How do you feel about it? No, we... I, I'm mixed on on AI and chatbot. We we actually had an investment called JobPal that was acquired by Smart Recruiters, and so you know, to me, you know, this comes down to is this a is this a feature, is a product, or is it a company? 
And, you know, when we made that investment, we had the belief that this was, you know, really AI was going to change how candidates interact with recruiters and, you know, making it much more scalable. There's still a long, long way to go, in my opinion. My view over time has probably changed where it's more of a, of a product than, you know, building a, a, a huge business. But there's certainly a lot happening there. And I would, you know, I, I think more broadly, we're going to see some form of, of smart AI enabled chatbots kind of infuse in, in, in most, you know, screening products, assessment products, you know, talent acquisition products over time. Got it. It, it will be there, but whether or not it's a company that you can fund to be an actual company or part of another product set is, is hard to tell right now. That's right. And I think we're going to see, we're seeing various levels of sophistication right now. And I think we're still, you know, if, if, if this is a marathon, we're still, you know, in mile two or three of a, of a long, of a, of a long race. So there's still a lot to play out. I think the chatbots, you know, some are, are certainly better than others, but I, you know, my expectation would be very high that they should be able to answer 100% of the questions. And as you know, in recruiting, a lot of questions are very nuanced. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too many questions also turn candidates away from the application process too. One of the That's other things right. actually you didn't necessarily mention was freelance or gig work. Is that something that you all, you know, how do you think about that that movement of people being becoming independent and being their own bosses? Yeah. Well, I think it's certainly, you know, from the data that we look at and we track, you know, the freelancer plus gig economy certainly is is growing and will continue to grow at a at a accelerated pace. So it's, it's definitely happening. I think there's, to me, you know, there's still, you know, regulatory issues that need to be resolved. You know, a lot of issues around benefits, who pays for benefits, you know, a lot of states like California have been kind of debating these things as it relates to Uber drivers and the like. So there's still a lot of things that need to be resolved. I firmly believe, you know, we're, you know, instead of kind of two classes of workers, we now have three classes of workers and the kind of gig and freelancers sit in the middle between the full-time and, and part-time workers. So I think it's certainly a trend. I think the, I was thinking about this today, which is um, what we're seeing, although, you know, we're not seeing it in, in technology or tools or, or, or products today, but, you know, people are working for multiple employers and that's going to continue ex- to, to continue to grow. And, and do I would, you mean the cases where people are, everyone is transparent that they're working for multiple employers or the, or are <laughs> well, the ones where it's like, Hey, you can say your, your full-time job, just work with us 20 hours a week. Cause I, I yeah, well, some are transparent and, and some aren't. And that's part of the, you know, part of the challenges right now, but you know, I've got, I've got a teenage son and I would expect when he's in the full-time world, he's not going to probably be working for a single employer. He's probably going to have, you know, one one employer there where he makes a majority of income, he's got a passion project, he's doing, you know, work for one or two other companies because he's helping a friend. So that whole work model itself yeah, is changing true. very, very quickly. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's absolutely, you know, the, the freelancer gig economy is certainly things that companies have to figure out what, what their strategy is. How does it scale? How do they manage it? You know, I remember back in my previous employer, we had salespeople that were working for uh, full time with one of, of our competitors, right? So, <laughs> you know, to your point on transparency, it, I, I imagine it still happens in, in a lot of cases. But I think that comes down to people, more broadly speaking, people now want to work on their own terms. And we're 
in a in a market environment at least today where you know with low unemployment it's an employer driven market right now employees have the power and i think that's going to persist for for a while and, and so how do you accommodate for that you know it, it opens up a lot of a lot of questions what i find what i think most interesting like you know i i would expect in 5 or 10 years you know, your experience is probably going to be less relevant than your skills. People just want to know they have a project, they have a something they want to get done. They don't necessarily care if it's a full-time or, or part-time work, worker. In fact, there's probably more advantages, you know, to, to bring in someone as a part-time worker freelancer than it is as a full-time worker. Long response to your question, EJ, but... No, no, I mean, I think it's great. I think like it's a, it's a very, there's different sides to consider from this as well. And I think I've seen financial products for freelancers of how do you help them get bank accounts or how do you help them get loans? And so that's one side of the space on the fintech side. And there's obviously the tools to work together. So there's a lot of ways to consider it. I think it's interesting about what that evolution of work is going to look like. I think the other thing I think about is that our model for corporate work life is really post-World War II. It's not that long. <laughs> and so this this change is just another part of the progression that feels different, but is really you know, what we had for a short period of time is also, I don't know, it's not that permanent. It's just a short period of time where we had the corporate work model in W2s. Yep. So are there parts of the future of work stack that you think are most ripe for disruption? We just have like the most conviction, this is going to be changed, this is going to change, and there's a big opportunity. I'm not sure if there's a part of the stack. The way I think about disruption is, is there some form of technology disruption? Is there some form of business model disruption? And is there some form of, of go-to-market disruption as, as combined with that? So, you know, there, from a technology perspective, as I mentioned earlier, I think no-code, open API is certainly a technology disruption. You know, we've seen some interesting business model disruption over the last few years as, as companies have, as startups have looked about, looked at, this whole product-led growth model. So how do we just get companies or individuals to use the software and hopefully it gets virally adopted? So I wouldn't say there's one thing that necessarily boils to the top. I do think what's important for us, you know, as investors and as a, as a firm is we try to find where that disruption is and what are they, you know, what is the company exploiting that's going to give them some unique competitive advantage as it pertains to, to being disruptive. And there's no, you know, there's usually not one single thing. It usually, you know, for the breakaway companies, it's usually a combination of factors. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's a good, a good way of putting that. Switching a little bit to the entrepreneur side, maybe coming to and thinking about advice for entrepreneurs, what are some of the do's and don'ts when pitching? Um, the biggest one for me, I'll, I'll try to keep it to one here, but, and maybe because this is fresh of mind, I was watching Shark Tank with my son yesterday and, and one of the entrepreneurs is already talking about their exit strategy, you know, in the earliest days of, of the company. And, and Mark Cuban said, if you have an exit strategy, it's not an obsession. And what, I guess what mm -hmm. he means by that, or my interpretation is, is when we invest, we look for entrepreneurs that are like, super obsessive about solving a problem they want to make it their their life's work and they're they you know they they almost obsess over it and so to get back to your question when i hear entrepreneurs already talking about the exit before they've even really you know either got product market fit or they've even reached a point of maturity it almost it's a big turnoff for me because what it what it tells me is is that you're not in it for the long haul you're not in it for this you know 10 year plus journey 
and that you're just, you know, doing it for some sort of financial exit or financial outcome. You know, we really want want to be investing in companies, as I said earlier, that are that are fairly transformative, that are thinking about, you know, solving bigger, broader uh, issues than just a financial return. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I think it also makes sense at that seed stage, right, where it's so early in the company, you're investing pre-revenue. You don't want someone who's just going to try to get aqua hired a year later for a one or two x return. You want someone yeah, who's going to be into it for a while. Yeah, I mean, our in many funds are very differently, but you know, I think there's a lot of funds that are similar to us, which is when we make an investment, what we try to underwrite to is is can this be a hundred million dollar ARR business? And so, you know, uh, not that, it, you know, the, the path needs to be clear. I mean, sometimes we're investing in new category creators, but do we have a belief that this can be a hundred million dollar business? And and to get there, as you know, what that requires is, you know, a, a, a multi-year journey. It requires zigs and zags and, you know, mini pivots and, you know, a, a lot of, of changes that's never up and to the right. And, and so... The hardest thing as an investor, I find, is assessing someone's stamina. Do they have the stamina to get beaten up every day to get themselves back up and get excited about you know the bigger, broader mission of the business? Yeah, you know, with COVID, are you seeing that that change at all? Are you seeing that the entrepreneurs who come in show more resilience because there's sort of this selection bias? Is there anything that you've seen with the pandemic and entrepreneurs and that sense of resilience? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think I've seen anything necessarily different. I guess if I saw anything different, it, it's now this belief that there's a much bigger opportunity in front of us, right? And almost, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think the belief that the whole, you know, model has been flipped upside down, right? Physical offices, are, you know, are we going to be going into physical offices five days a week? And many jobs, we aren't anymore. You know, we're moving away from this idea of hierarchies. You know, job job titles are probably less important than they've ever been. And there's less currency in, in job titles today. So there's just so many, you know, broader impacts of, of COVID that are manifested in different ways that present this huge opportunity to redesign not just how work is done, but the enabling technologies that that support it. And so that's where I see entrepreneurs really, you know, more so not just thinking, oh, I want to disrupt this incumbent because they're slow, because they have 20-year-old technology. They're thinking about, I want to build something because this is what the world's going to look like in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I, I think I've seen more strategic investors in the future of work HR spaces. Some of these companies like Workday have gotten bigger. How do you think about strategic investors in the early stage? Because I'm sure you did that as well at Cornerstone. Yeah, so we launched a corporate venture fund at at Cornerstone. I'd say you know there was a, certainly a lot of lessons learned. I think there's, I think it the answer is it varies. I, I think you have to look individually at those strategic investors and really understand what's in it for them. Why are they doing it? What value that they add? You know, and I'll take two examples. Right, Workday. You know, they've got, a, I don't know what the latest number is. I think it's a $250 million venture fund where they've mostly invest into series A or series B and later. And I, I think it works for them because it gives those companies that are, you know, in scale up mode access to a, a bigger, broader ecosystem, but doing it, you know, I shouldn't say ecosystem, but bigger, broader access to customers. So 
I think Workday's done a, a good job in the aspect of just opening up customers to their to their investments versus you know Slack on the other spectrum, right? Slack invests in seed stage companies. They did it to build out their ecosystem. But what they did very smartly, which a lot of you know corporate or CVCs don't really do, is they they have the infrastructure, the stack, the processes, the documentation is ready to go. So it's easy to plug into their ecosystem. And this was mm-hmm. a you know a lesson learned from my my world at Cornerstone is we didn't have that. You know when 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 companies wanted to take our money or you know when we we found investments, they got excited about oh we can integrate with Cornerstone. Well, we didn't have. Yeah, you know, we didn't make it easy for them to do that. You know, Slack, you know, because they wanted to build out their ecosystem, they had all of that, their open APIs, the documentation, so they can really plug and play and, and get value out of, you know, get that value out of the investment. So I think, yeah. that, you know, there's there's certainly value add. I, you know, it really depends on what you want from those strategic investors. Sometimes it can be certainly negative. It does give off signaling that if you take corporate, you know, if you take CBC money at seed or series A, then it limits your options down the road. And certainly that, you know, there's, there's truth and fiction to that, but there's, there's value and there's, there's, there's certainly risks. And yeah, I think you just have to go in eyes wide open to understand both and, and weigh them. Uh, I mean, part of that, that decision. I think you had a couple interesting lessons, both for entrepreneurs thinking about it. And then also for any company that has their, their venture capital arm. So I think it sounds like know what game you're in on the CVC side, know what you're really trying to do and accomplish. And if part of it is grow your ecosystem, make sure that it's easy to do. And then I think on the founder side, it sounds like understand what the expectations are. And so if on the founder, you're like, oh, I'm going to get access to the customers, maybe, but only if that company has already made it easy to do. Is that that's right? right? That's exactly right. And I think you also, you know, I think you have to also really understand the intentions of, of the CVC, right? So for, you know, I'll give you an example. Like when we would make an investment at, at Cornerstone, we we didn't think about, you know, is this a company that we can acquire? Well, I shouldn't say we didn't think about, we didn't make an investment because we thought this was a company we can acquire in three or four years. That was more of the backstop for us, which is this may be interesting and maybe we build a relationship with over time and maybe it becomes interesting for us to acquire over time. So, you know, I think that's something that you need to really understand what the intentions are because there's value on, there's certainly value on both sides. I don't, you know, what you don't want to go in is, is naive into the, into that relationship, either expecting that the company is going to buy you at a couple, in a couple of years, or, you know, if, if, if they don't, you know, it somewhat limits your options. I think you just have to go in wise, I guess eyes wide open is what I'm saying. So then as a founder, do you just ask that question? Are you just like, what's the, why are you investing in us? How well, do you I think one that? is, one is, you know, like if you're a seed stage company, does it make sense to go talk to work? They probably not. So I think you have to be smart in terms of really what you want out of them, you know, beyond just the, the capital, you know, is it access to customers? Is it, you know, plugging into their ecosystem? I think you should certainly you know, be able to probe beyond the, like, what happens if this works? What happens if this doesn't work? You know, and, and understanding that, because I've seen certain cases where, you know, the companies just don't get the momentum and the CVC just loses interest. And maybe, you know, like if, if you look at the Salesforce model, which has been extremely successful over the last 10 years, but, you know, sometimes they would make two investments in a company and then they go off and build the same product, right? So. Mm-hmm. I think it's just understanding what those intentions are 
and and being realistic of of what to expect and what not to expect. Got it. So as a founder, be realistic. Ask the questions. Don't expect that you're going to have a strategic exit. They're not a fallback plan. Effectively, is what I'm hearing. I, I think that would be very very unwise to think about going into that relationship as you know the, these guys are gonna gonna buy me in two or three or four years. And then, nor do I think that's how most CVCs think about it. So yeah, I I think it's just important to really understand what the value add is, why they want to invest in you, what are the potential pitfalls in and making a guided decision from there. Maybe this is a longer question I'm about to ask, but you know, from that experience at Cornerstone, when you all thought about doing an acquisition, do you have a high level of how you that process works to help sort of founders understand, you know, how likely or unlikely strategic acquisitions actually are? I mean, this is probably worth a longer, much longer than a couple minute question. Longer discussion. I I think some of it is thinking about what's offensive versus what's defensive, and and so you know we would spend a lot of time in in our in our small corporate development team trying to map out areas where we think we needed to be offensive, where we knew we just couldn't build, we didn't you know have a sufficient partner, and it was just something that we needed to acquire. So there's kind of the offensive playbook, but there's also the defensive playbook, which is, you know, talking to investment investment bankers all the time and understanding like, hey, maybe maybe this isn't something that we were thinking about as, as important to our our strategy, but it makes you know economic sense. And there's some really interesting synergies where, you know, it, it, it would stack rank higher. So there's, you know. I would expect, you know, mo- mo- most core dev teams today are have gotten certainly much more sophisticated when I was doing it, you know, 10, 8 to 10 years ago. But I think it's it's important to understand there's kind of the, the offensive approach and the, and the defensive approach, and you almost have to play, play both games on the field. So when you're, you know, if you have a portfolio company, you've invested in them, do you have a framework for thinking about when a, a portfolio company founder should take that strategic call? Or not? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. You know, what I encourage our entrepreneurs is is don't shy away from those calls. You know, there's nothing that can you know can there's no reason why you shouldn't. You can certainly learn a lot. You can certainly you know build relationships. You know, if you're not for sale, you should be very explicit that you're not for sale. You know, because you know in in. In the in the game of M and A, you know you want to you want to be bought, not sold. And what I mean by that is, is you'd much rather have someone come to you with the desire to purchase you versus having to run a process with an investment banker, you know, an auction process. It just, you know, my advice is always yeah. have the conversation, build those relationships. You never know where they can go. If you're not, you know, if you're not a willing seller, make sure you, they, that you tell them you're not a willing seller, and they will. I, w- I would expect, you know, most, you know, people in the corporate dev seat are high integrity people and they're going to respect that and they're going to want to keep a, an ongoing conversation because you never know what, what can happen. But, you know, so encourage those conversations, but certainly, you know, don't be afraid to be, be direct on what your expectations are and, and setting the right, you know, the, the right tone for the conversation. That, that makes sense. So maybe switching to your experience now and venture and leaving the corporate venture world to your own firm, you know, what, what guides your thinking on the, the venture side? How did you prepare for your, your switch? Is there any like people, books, et cetera, that you found helpful for anyone who might be thinking about similar things? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a little bit of a, a learning curve from my my you know four years of doing corporate venture. You know, we were we weren't hugely active, but I you know I probably learned more what not to do versus what to do during that that tenure. So I had a lot of kind of on the job training, which I was certainly thankful for. It's hard to point to one thing. I mean, the best part about being in venture capital is that you get to learn every day. I probably spend uh, a big a big chunk, you know, 30% of my day just reading different articles, scouring the web, connecting with folks. So it's a, you know, it's a job that requires lifelong learning. And, and you know, if that's, if that's not what you enjoy doing, it's a hard job to, to do without being wired to, to be learning all of the time. So for me, it's just doing a lot of my own individual research. I mean, it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine in a you know pretty big corporate job over the weekend, and he was asking me, oh, your day must be blocked all day with Zoom calls. And I'm like, it actually isn't. I actually intentionally block big chunks of my day just to do my own work, to do my own research, to do my own, my own sourcing. So that's the, probably the, the, the biggest thing for me and how I learned today. Got it. So then are you taking that time to synthesize and come up with a thesis of what space you might want to invest in or what company? Or are you just kind of learning, taking it in and using that information to then be more effective in your due diligence process or meeting with a founder or helping a founder? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, which is, you know, we are, we're getting much better at that of saying, you know, this is a category where we want to have an investment. So let's go and map out the market. Let's do a market map of, you know, who's out there and who we think are going to be the top players to emerge. So that's one part of it. And we historically haven't done that, but, you know, we're getting much better at, at mapping out some of those markets that we think are interesting you know, on the flip side of that, some of these times when you meet companies, they're, they're kind of in a unestablished category, right? They're a new category creator. So sometimes you're, you know, you don't have a lot of information to make an investment off of. Sometimes you're you're kind of imagining what the, the company or the market's going to look like in a few years. So it's doing a combination of both, which is, you know, when I think about where we invest, it's really three areas. It's category disruption. So, you know, are you going to disrupt an existing category? Is it category creation, so creating new categories that don't necessarily is, exist today, or is it what I call category internationalization, so going taking an existing category but bringing it to, you know, an emerging market or some new you know geography? Yeah, that that makes sense as a framework. I think that's a good way to to think about it. Maybe last question here: How has running the venture firm compared to your initial expectations? Like, what what has been sort of like on the expectation, and what what has been new and and different from what you expected? Um, I think the short answer it is it's really really hard to be great at venture capital, and the way I like to think about it is I, I was looking at some stats yesterday, right? So. You know, there's twenty. There's been twenty two thousand players in the game of baseball, professional baseball, but only two hundred sixty eight have made it to the Hall of Fame. So you got about a one percent chance of going from mm-hmm. getting on the getting on the playing field to actually making it to the Hall of Fame. And I think venture capital is probably very very similar. Which is there's lots of people in venture capital, but it's really really hard to be really really great. So that's one thing I, I've learned is is it's a it's it's a it's certainly a, a craft and, and it's, so, so that's kind of lesson number one is it's hard to be great. Lesson number two is it's, it's a pretty diverse job, right? So when you think about 
what it takes to be a VC. You have to source deals. You have to, you know, there, there's kind of four things that you hear a lot of VCs talk about sourcing, picking, winning, and helping, right? So you, can you find the deals? Can you win the deals that you want to invest in? Can you help the companies? And those are critical to, to, to the job. And some would argue it's really mostly about sourcing. Can you find the best deals out there? There's a fifth element that, you know, I didn't really think about before I got into venture capital at the level I do today. And that's, a, that's about returning. And what I mean by that is, are you returning capital back to your investors, mm-hmm. your limited partners? And to me, that's, that's the most important thing. You got to, yeah. you know, you got to, you got to find companies, you got to invest in the right companies, but are you returning capital at a rate greater than your, your, your peers? And, you know, my goal is, is for our firm to be a top decile fund. That means, you know, we got to return on average north of four to five X, you know, the numbers vary in the changing. And is that net of fees? Is that four to five X net of fees? So it's like, that's six? right. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. So for our, just an example, our vintage right now for our first fund, 2019, the, the TVPI total value of paid in capital is around 1.4. Right now we're about 2.7. And so, you know, it's something I didn't think a lot going into starting my my firm about portfolio construction. It's something I think about every single day. And, you know, I look at spreadsheets and dashboards that we have because to me, you know, my limited partners ha- have have a strong belief that we're going to return capital. And that's something that that is extremely important. And that's going to give us, you know, sustainability over time is if we're, if we're an outlier liar fund performer in terms of our metrics, returning capital back to our investors, you know, we'll, we'll survive the long haul. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that's, that's helpful to, to get that perspective of all those things that you're thinking about. That's obviously a lot to do. You know, it sounds like it's a really interesting job, but there are a lot of pieces to it. Um, so I, I wanted to, to thank you today, Jason, for having your time, for going over these, I think, a lot of great insights into the future of work and investing in Acadian Ventures. So if if anyone is interested in sending you a potential deal, where do you want them to go? Yeah, you can always use my email. I'll give it uh, over here. It's just um, jason.corsello, C-O-R-S-E-L-L-O at AcadianVentures.com. Email is probably and, the best best way to get to me or or LinkedIn, obviously, is another good one. All right. I'll put that in the show notes. So anyone who's okay. looking to raise funds, raise seas funding can get in touch with you and submit your deal. Awesome. Thanks, awesome. Jason. Thank you, Jason. 